I never got any money from you. Be normal. And now, Mr. Edwards, I would like to make a disclosure, which is something which has never been revealed to the public. This is The Saucer Life, exploring the history and lore of flying saucers. The Saucer Life is a podcast in which we explore concepts, events, or people from the world of flying saucers. No preconceptions, snark applied with laser-like focus to those who deserve it, no belief, no debunking, no shortage of my baseless speculation. This is Encounter 69, The Mysterious Mitchell Sisters. So, this episode started out as a plan to cover Helen and Betty, the Mitchell sisters, but along with another event or two, because I wasn't sure the Mitchell sisters could fill an entire episode. Boy, was I wrong. Boy, was I wrong. I was mistaken. Now, I want to explain why I thought an entire Mitchell sisters episode would be a little thin. The sisters produced one pamphlet, basically a transcript of a speech at Buck, uh, Buck Nelson's Flying Saucer Convention. Then they disappeared from the scene with no big comeback or anything. Researcher and, and friend of the show, John E. L. Tenney, told me that he once attempted to find some trace of them and came up empty-handed, which honestly made me feel a little better about my lack of luck. I don't know if you've ever experienced this, but when you're doing any kind of research, there's a, a certain kind of headache that sets in where... Your brain knows that you're getting absolutely nowhere. Um, and we'll talk about where I got that was pretty close to nowhere a little later on. But what I discovered is that in the absence of certainty about Helen and Betty Mitchell, people had stepped in to fill the gaps. And this became a story not just of two sisters who claimed to have contact with space people from Venus and Mars, but about how abandoned stories can and are appropriated and expanded upon. So, we first hear about these sisters and their experiences in the pages of Saucerian Magazine, Gray Barker's Saucerian Magazine. This is from Volume 2, Number 4, September 1959. Newest contact story involves Helen and Betty Mitchell of 1415 South Bernadette Street, Florissant, Missouri. Their saucery experiences began when the two young ladies, we didn't ask but assume that they're in their 20s, stopped in a St. Louis, Missouri sandwich shop and started talking about telepathy. They noticed two young men at the next table looking at them, but ignored them until one walked over to their table and began a conversation. The sisters, apparently accustomed to wolfish attention, were ready to give the fellow the brush off when they noticed that close up he looked rather odd, although they couldn't decide just what it was except, perhaps, his very dark complexion. Then he gave them the punchline. I am Velas from the planet Mars, and my friend is Elen from Venus. Elen, they noticed, was a blonde. The two men very seriously told further about themselves and their home planets, but still the sisters took it as a joke, unable to believe them. We'll be seeing you in one week, they told the sisters as they departed, and the girls left the coffee shop, still feeling they were victims of a hoax. It so happened that in a week, business matters again took them to St. Louis, and they decided to drop into the same coffee shop, laughingly wondering if the spacemen would be there, only by this time they weren't so certain the two men had been joking. Their apparent knowledge of space and the planets, though it could have been contrived, and above all, their obvious seriousness had impressed the sisters. Surely enough, there were the two friends, sitting at the same table. 
This time they handed them a diagram of what appeared to be a quite simple electronic device. The two men told them they could build the device easily and could use it to communicate with them, though they warned the sisters not to reveal the device or the plan to others. The device works on the principle of magnetic lines, Betty Mitchell told me on a long-distance phone call. Later, one of the sisters is allowed to take a trip on the saucer. Climax of the many contacts, however, was an invitation to go with the two men out of the city. We assume that one of the sisters was alone at the time, and our notes are confused whether it was Helen or Betty, though we'll assume it was Helen, because only one of them accompanied the men. She got into a car and was driven through East St. Louis and finally out of the city into Illinois. They drove to a wooded area where Helen saw a large barn. They opened the door of the barn, she got out of the car, and they drove the car inside, then shut the door. They pointed to a nearby clearing. Helen gasped, for there sat a flying saucer. It was bell-shaped, but without the familiar portholes of the Adamski-style craft. She entered the craft, and they took her for a 15-minute ride. They went over Chicago, Boston, and the North Pole. Then, through a lens affair in the floor of the craft, she saw the Earth speeding away from them. They told her they were taking her for a short trip out into space. They took her to a huge mother craft, which she didn't describe, then back to Earth to the same spot they had left the ground. Betty Mitchell also had seen a saucer land close by, but it, she told me on the phone, had portholes. It was not like the one my sister rode in. I wondered what these particular spacemen had in mind, asked one of the sisters what sort of information they wished them to impart to others. Helen said that Velas and Elan were concerned, like other spacemen, about the atomic explosions, the danger of wars and the like, but they stressed the fact that our solar system was moving into a higher vibrational plane and that Earth people should be prepared for the sights and events they would witness. Now, following his retelling of the story, Barker had some thoughts about not just their story, but about the conundrum of contact details in general. Contact stories such as the foregoing, the Howard Menger, Adamski, Bethram, and other accounts are indeed difficult to believe, but more difficult not to accept, at least in part. We said we believed there was some basis to the stories, some stimulus, probably a meeting up with the unknown, such an alien and complex meeting that the contactees may have built a mental framework around the experience which would allow them to explain it in everyday terms. They probably didn't consciously make up the framework. Instead, their subconscious minds may have provided some basis of reality with which to make the experience understandable. Velas and Elen make a lot of sense to us, particularly when they say our solar system is moving into a higher vibrational plane. If that were true, could it not account for many of the strange things man has been witnessing in such great numbers since 1947? Some of the saucers just don't seem to be genuine material craft. Some of them are obviously amorphous, appear as strange masses which can change shape and even vanish before your very eyes. As, as usual, Barker does a good job of hedging his bets. Um, these stories didn't happen, of course, except they kind of did happen. The story they told didn't happen, but something must have happened to these people, and these craft are weird. I have a hard time arguing with some of that, and I've used the sort of explanation of, well, they probably some of them probably experienced something at various times on the show and elsewhere, but it is kind of an unsatisfying answer. But you know, why are we looking for answers in contactee stories? And I think Barker sort of sort of makes that point that, you know, we don't know what happened, but in some cases, clearly something did. So we're not 
done with this in this issue of Sasarian, because at the end, there was an update about the Mitchell sisters' situation. Addenda to the report by Helen and Betty Mitchell reported elsewhere in this issue. We've received a letter from them after they had sent us a manuscript describing their various experiences for possible publication in book form. We'll quote the letter. Dear Mr. Barker, Due to a recent decision made by us, we are withdrawing from the saucer field as active participants and lecturers. Therefore, we are asking that our manuscript be returned. It is not now our desire to have it on the market at this time, so we are enclosing with this letter the necessary postage to make this more convenient for you. We appreciate very much your interest in the manuscript and wish to thank you for your time spent. With all good wishes for eternal peace, we remain sincerely, Helen and Betty Mitchell. We do hope this does not develop into another of the shush-up cases. By shush-up cases, he is, of course, referring to the, the three men in black, or any other number of men in black you might uh, you might like. It's it's just a couple years after his, his book on the subject, They Knew Too Much About Flying Saucers, came out. We'll return to this vanishing from the field, then re- recurring or returning to the field because the sisters do when they um, when they do allow eventually Barker to publish the booklet of a talk they give at Buck Nelson's convention. Now, this booklet, unlike Adamski's Inside the Spaceships or other full-length contactee tomes, it's one of many sort of cardboard-covered, stapled booklets produced during the 1950s, not just by Gray Barker's Saucerian Books, but by numerous other publishers, including just published by the contactees themselves. It consists of two sections, Helen's story and Betty's account, and each is brief, around 5,000 words each. Though I'm not certain, it's, it's probable that Barker, um, since he edited and published the books, crafted this work out of the speech um, and really didn't change a lot. Betty, for example, reports that they received, quote, information from a Venusian from Trigon. I would like to read his message for you, which we received just a few days before we came down here. So it's that brief introduction to that part. There's it's it's that part's brief and there's a reference to reading something. What this suggests to me is that what we see in their booklet, which was called We Met the Space People, was probably very close to what they delivered at Buck Nelson's Flying Saucer convention, which maybe, possibly, gives us a, a, a maybe a rawer, rawer, more raw, more immediate take on the subject. Helen's story describes the initial encounter between the sisters and the men from Mars. Like many contact details, the initial meeting between Earthling and Extraterrestrial took place in some pretty ordinary circumstances. It's like was described in the account in the Saucerian, but with a bit more detail. It all began when my sister Betty and I were in a downtown St. Louis coffee shop. We had been shopping and had stopped off to get a Coke and refresh ourselves. While in the coffee shop, we were approached in a very mannerly way by two gentlemen dressed in gray suits who managed to interrupt our private conversation. As they spoke to us, we found they were from a huge mothercraft orbiting the planet Earth, and that their names were Elen and Zelas. They told us that we had been very closely watched by the space people for the last eight years, and that our progress had been noted off and on from the time of our birth. Betty and I were both inclined to think that someone was playing a silly joke on us, and we laughed when they told us this, but they were not laughing, and were serious and stern. We were strangely shocked, however, when they told us of a few incidents in our childhood that no one could possibly have known except the family. 
They told us that we had been selected as contacts by the people of space to serve as channels through which they could give information to Earth, and that we had been carefully watched, as I stated before. They told us of the reasons why the space people were coming to Earth, and that they were here to guide Earth along the lines of brotherhood and science. Now, notice that the one alien is named Zelos here instead of Velos, um, as in the Saucerian account. I don't know if the name changed or if it was a handwritten letter that Barker received. Maybe the handwriting was bad. So anyway, one thing that um, I, think is, uh, I think is interesting here is that there's this notion of male alien visitors watching Earth girls grow into adulthood and subsequently making contact. I think that has a, a certain sort of degree of paternalism or possessiveness to it. Now, on a subsequent visit to the same St. Louis coffee shop, as discussed in the Saucerian account, the Space Brothers present Helen and Betty with instructions on how to build a communications device through which the sisters can maintain contact with the Martians aboard their spacecraft and communicate with their commander, whose name is Alna. It was quite the complicated process, as Helen explained. His instructions were very explicit and precise, for he warned us that unless we placed every piece of the device in the proper place, we would not be able to contact them with it. We were not allowed to take the drawn diagram of the device with us, but we had to remember it as it was explained to us. So, just to address the elephant in the room, this discussion of constructing an interplanetary communication device is suspiciously similar to a similar sequence in the 1955 film This Island Earth, where we have Dr. Cal Meacham being instructed on how to build an interocitor, which allows him to communicate with the big four-headed alien people. Surprisingly, this kind of overlap between popular science fiction and UFO stuff happened less frequently than you might think, but by 1958-1959, we're starting to see a degree of cross-contamination. Through this communication device, getting back to the story, Helen and Betty learned a great deal about the Martians' way of life. Unsurprisingly, they live in a pristine, perfect world that is very similar to every other contactee story you may have heard. So, in November of 1957, Helen Mitchell had a trip on a flying saucer. She took a 15-minute flight to the mothercraft in orbit of the Earth. As it's presented in the booklet, it's very narrative-y, which makes sense since she was telling a story to an assembled audience. So I decided to dramatize it. Um, yes, it's Mitchell's sister's fan fiction. And as I'll argue in a little bit, I'm not the first one to do Mitchell's sister fan fiction. So here is an Illinois interlude, the first installment at uh, maybe a recurring occasional, very occasional department here called... Saucer Fanfic Theater. Hello, Helen. Oh, my. It's you, Zalas. Yes, it is, as you say. I. My sister, I need to ask something of you. Oh, anything. You know that. Excellent, excellent. I need you to get in this automobile. We're going for a ride. Okay, I suppose it's all right. Where are we going? Initially, East St. Louis, then further beyond into the wild stretches of the land you call Illinois. Well, that certainly sounds like an adventure. Let's go! So, why are we going to Illinois? Why shouldn't we go to Illinois? 
A vast place full of wonder, not unlike the lands I call home. Really? No. I'm from another planet. I was attempting to use humor to put you at ease. Now, to answer your question, we're going to what you call a barn. All right. I know I sound like a broken record here, but I'm going to ask, why again? Well, as you'll see when we get there, the barn's back in a heavily wooded area, and it's a very convenient place to land our craft when we have business or contacts in St. Louis, which, to be honest, is more often than you'd think. But it is nice and isolated out here. So do you just leave the car in the barn when you go home? Why, why, yes. How on Mars did you deduce that? Well, it just makes sense. And not to be rude or anything, this car smells like it's been sitting in a barn. Does this trouble you? You know, not really. I'm sitting in a car with a man from space being driven to a barn in the middle of nowhere. My threshold for being troubled is pretty high. (laughs) Indeed, indeed. Such equanimity is one of the reasons we chose you as a contact. Not every Earth person is able to cope so admirably. Ah, we've arrived. Already? It's only been a minute or two. Well, it seems like that, but often time is compressed when dramatizing events for a podcast skit. What? Nothing. Let's go. Wow. It's smaller than I thought it would be. What is it? About nine feet in height? About 38 feet in diameter? Yes. That, that, that's a remarkably accurate estimate. Well done. Seems a little small for a spaceship. Well, this is just the landing craft. Let's go inside. Helen, are you okay? You're shaking. Yes, I think I'm fine. Keep smiling, though. For some reason, it seems to reassure me. So where are we going? To our mothercraft. It's not a long trip. About 15 of your Earth minutes. How does this thing fly? Magnetism. Okay. Weird question. Will the magnetism affect my wristwatch? Oh, oh, of course not. Not this little ship. Good. I'd hate for anything to happen to it. Of course, on the Mothercraft, your watch won't work at all. Loads of magnetism on the Mothercraft. But don't worry, we'll demagnetize it when you get back. We have a machine that does that. You have a machine specifically for demagnetizing Earth wristwatches? You know, you're not our only contact, and lots of you Earth people seem to wear wristwatches. Ah, we've arrived. So, what room is this? This is the landing bay. The relaxation room is through here. This room is huge. And this furniture. Why on earth would you have white furniture? Must be a huge pain to keep clean. Do earth people not have self-cleaning fabrics? No. That makes me sad. Ah, here's Alna. He's the commander of all craft operations upon earth. Greetings, Helen. I trust Zelas has treated you well. Except for the car that smelled like a barn, it's been a great trip. Excellent. Come, we will show you the control section. Now, over here, we have our communications area. Would you like to call Betty? Oh, absolutely. Our technician will connect you. Go ahead. Betty, is that you? Guess where I am. No, guess again. Never mind. I'm with the Space Brothers. 
Yes, I am. Well, you didn't want to come to St. Louis with me. Their ship was over in Illinois. It didn't make sense to come pick you up. It would have been completely out of the way. I'll make sure you come the next trip. Yeah, I promise. Bye. Now look over here, Helen. This is how we know so much about you and your sister. It looks like a television. What's on? Hey, is that my house? Yes, we can see inside your house. See, there's your mother and, and children and there's Betty. So you can see anything, anytime you like? Oh, yes. Anything? Absolutely. I'm, I'm oddly unbothered by that. Yes, yeah, strange, isn't it? Come, we'll have dinner. Then you can watch a couple of Space Brothers do a dance. Later. Now that you're taking me home, I just feel like I need to tell people all about what I've seen. Do you really think that's the best plan? Maybe not. I really do need to learn more. You will. Soon. There, that wasn't so painful, was it? Now, within a few weeks, the Martians contacted the sisters again, informing them that the Martian Council wished to speak to them. Helen's narrative is then given over to an address by a space brother named Sigt, S-I-G-T, who discusses the dangers of the A and H bombs, which Earth's governments were in the process of testing, which released dangerous radiation into the atmosphere. Earth scientists are creating around planet Earth the most deadly condition to material man than ever. The explosions of the A and H bombs are placing the residue particles of radioactivity into all the materials of Earth. Each human being upon Earth now carries a certain degree of radioactivity in their bones and systems. This is dangerous for Earthlings, of course, but also for space people living on Earth. He goes into a lengthy explanation of how radiation works from a Martian perspective, and, in my opinion, the most interesting portion of this very uninteresting explanation is about the sound of radiation. What does radioactivity sound like? I will try to explain. Many people are receptive to certain high vibratory sounds that are derived from the atomic explosions and are the elemental changes in the atmospheres of Earth. These high-pitched sounds are very serious for they can almost pierce the very soul consciousness and cause changes there. The consciousness of man is being affected every day by these vibrations that these explosions have created. And, unless these are altered, or until the explosions of this nature are stopped, the mind of man will be changed in drastic measures. Some of these notes can cause a perfectly healthy person to develop a fatal illness. Some can affect the mental processes terribly, other of these vibrations, if not altered within the consciousness of the individual, can cause one to commit acts that otherwise would not be done. So what do we do about this? Fortunately, Sigt and the rest of the Martian Council has a simple solution to the problem. How can you stop this from happening? The answer is simply stop the unnecessary tests of these bombs. For those who maintain it is necessary to show military strength, we can only say... What strength is there to be shown that deprives the people, vegetation, and animals of a perfectly beautiful and attainable future? Is it truly possible that the deceivability of such destructive weapons can replace sane, sound actions of better living? It is necessary now for the space people living upon Earth to take protective measures or otherwise suffer the same effects from radioactivity as the citizens. Whoa, whoa, wait a minute. They have a means of protection against radiation? Surely they would share it with us, right? 
It is not possible for us to give Earth's people enough of the protectors without the cooperation of the governments, and such cooperation is at present unattainable. The continuance of these tests are affecting all responsible for them, and if one accepts reincarnation as an answer, it would be definitely seen why no one here or responsible for these tests would want to relive again in mutated bodies of the future generations. If reincarnation be unacceptable to the average person, then the knowledge that these tests are mutating their children and their children's children should be sufficient for stopping them. Our warning to Earth is, cease your tests and save your future. Helen's section of the booklet closes by addressing their abrupt departure from the field, which happened about five minutes after they entered the field. An erroneous idea has sprung up that perhaps we had been shut up by the three men in black. We would like to clarify this, for we have not been visited by anyone who threatened us, and we were temporarily withdrawing from the saucer field for personal reasons. These reasons were due to certain changes we were going to make, and one was due to the fact that I was going to leave for France. However, different plans have been formed, and I am not going to leave for France. Therefore, we will be available at times for lectures and speeches. Going to France, then not going to France, certain changes we were going to make. I have the feeling that whatever happened in these women's lives during this time was probably more interesting than flying saucers. Betty's account now, the, the sort of Betty's half, is a, is a record of her communications with Trigon, a space brother from Venus. Unlike Helen's story, with its topical discussion of the dangers of nuclear weapons testing, Betty's message from Trigon is largely given over to a history of Earth's lost civilizations, particularly Atlantis, and the connections between ancient Earth and the space brothers of the solar system. The time of Atlantis saw, quote, a growth of intelligent comprehension, and people, quote, began to follow the evil influences. Earth was then polluted. Venusians came to call Earthlings to repent, sort of like prophets from the Hebrew Bible, but of course Earthlings did not all repent. This sequence of events culminated in the flood recorded in the biblical story of Noah, as well as the destruction of Atlantis. Just as messengers from Venus and so on warned the evil humans of Atlantis in ancient times, the same pattern, they say, is repeating in the United States and the Soviet Union in the 20th century. Now, the question of what's actually going to happen remains open, and the final decision of that outcome is out of the Space Brothers' hands. And of course, the Space Brothers cannot interfere on our behalf. The Space People cannot intervene, nor cause all the A and H bombs to become inactive, for they too are held in a certain status until the time comes when the Most High issues a decree of action for Earth. No doubt they have the wisdom and means of making all the storage of bombs inactive, but they will not or cannot interfere unless the order is given by the Most High. The brothers have told us before that the evil ones of Atlantis were experimenting with energy releases that our scientists are playing with today in the A and H bomb experiments. Due to this, they brought about the axis change more quickly than the natural change would have been. He has told us the tribulations of Earth could be brought about too quickly, for an axis change is coming, and left unhampered, it will be natural and slow. But if the explosion of bombs continues, it could bring about this axis change too quickly and cause cataclysms. Many times, the enthusiast asks us, why don't the space people just come down and take over? Earth would be better off. But Trigon has answered that question, and until Earth is again ready for the natural axis change, they will only issue warnings and perhaps take the faithful up to their far heavens, 
where they will await the final cleansing of Earth's surface. So as we can see here, despite their pledge of non-interference with the ultimate fate of Earth, the brothers are prepared to act for the benefit of certain humans. Since the space people of Venus did instruct and guide the faithful people of Earth to sacred places where they would be safe when certain changes took place, we know that they will again do this at the proper time. Our scientists know that there are cycles of activity that Earth passes through, and Trigon also said in his message that, as a new cycle of change in the heavens began, the wise ones of Venus came to Earth to warn all to repent. The people of Venus knew of the inevitable axis change that was to bring a flood and cataclysms to Earth. The faithful were warned, and only those who were full of obedience to the Most High received the warnings and instructions. Thus, Earth was cleansed, and the evil ones with their records and language sank with Atlantis and other continents, while the faithful were saved. We find the space people are now prepared to again warn those who are faithful, and to show them sacred ground to go to, also to lift them from the face of the Earth itself, and protect them from the radioactivity and evil of those who do not follow the laws of the Most High. Our space brothers have said, let those who have ears to hear, let them hear. Trigon has told us that the evil of Earth will continue until the planets and oceans are radioactive, unless Earthman puts a stop to this evil. The notion of the faithful being taken up and saved from a time of tribulation has unmistakable parallels to the notion of a rapture and tribulation eschatology as promoted by dispensationalist evangelical Protestants. It also provides a vision of contactee belief as a type of salvation-based faith. There is protection in the heavens, if not heaven, for those who are faithful, despite the two sisters never explaining the precise nature of this faith to which they refer, or what they mean exactly by obedience to the Most High, or anything like that. But we've seen this before, haven't we? With the Dorothy Martin story we covered in Encounters 402 and 403, and there are similar rapture-style hints in some of the Ashtar materials. So the Space Brothers' views, as related by Helen and Betty, are pretty typical theme-wise within the context of contactee narratives. And one thing that I've always thought was interesting about their account is the relative absence of an emphasis on gender in the presentation. Just as contactees such as Adamski and Van Tassel did not make an issue of the fact that they were men or their maleness, the Mitchell sisters sort of refusal or, you know, failure to make an issue of their femaleness, at least in what we have, this published transcript, represents, in my opinion, an attempt to place themselves on an equal footing to figures like George Adamski and George Van Tassel. This isn't a love story like we got with Elizabeth Clarer, and there's no eventual marriage, as we'll see, down the road with Dana Howard, another woman who had contact with the space people. We'll return to the sisters momentarily and finish this up, but uh, next time, it's one of the guys who was a cornerstone of the scene in the late 1980s. We've seen John Lear, and we've seen little Billy Cooper, but in our next episode, we're going to take a look at Bill English's secret grudge. You can check out past episodes, read some of our reviews of saucer-related material, including the just-going-to-be-released uh, if you're listening to this on the day of release, two days from now, second season of the series Hellier. I've got some thoughts on that up on the website. You can also uh, click a link to financially support the show. You can all do all that at saucerlife.com. 
We're on Twitter and Instagram at Saucer Life, or you can email us at thesaucerlife at gmail.com. You can subscribe to the show wherever you find podcasts, which I assume you have done since you are listening to it. And this is new and a little goofy, but if you want to write to us, like a physical letter with a stamp, you can do so at Media P.O. Box 68, Grand Blank, Michigan, 48480. That's blank with a C because it's all fancy and classy and sort of French looking. Also, I want to thank everybody um, for the feedback they sent on our 90s magazine mixtape episode. Uh, Luckily, everybody sort of listened to the beginning or read the show notes. I didn't get any emails or tweets or or Facebook comments saying, this sounds like it was recorded on cassette. Good grief. What's wrong with you? I wanted to inform you that thanks to a lead provided by a listener on Twitter, I have actually obtained from an eBay seller a mint unopened copy of the Euphoria board game that was advertised in that 1990 issue of UFO magazine. I'm trying to figure out the best way to showcase a playthrough of the game for the show here, but I'm not sure if I can bring myself to actually break the plastic wrap of the game. Um, I'll keep you informed. And we're back. So, in 2012, as far as I can figure, something interesting arrived on the scene. It was a book called UFO Contact from Mars, Among the Stars, the autobiography of the Mitchell sisters, by Helen and Betty Mitchell. It was published by Wendell Stevens, who died in 2010. And at this point in my script, I just have the line, riff on Stevens. Um, I will try not to take up too much time. Wendell Stevens um, was somebody who was deeply involved in the UFO scene. He had a massive collection of purported UFO photos, some of which went up on auction in the last couple days here in late November 2019. Wendell Stevens also had some fairly unsavory stuff in his criminal record, which you'll find if you Google, but probably the the most significant thing that Stevens was involved with was being the figure who was responsible more than any other for bringing the story of Swiss contactee Billy Meyer to the, uh, to the American people or the English-speaking world through his translations of Meyer's books. That is all I'm going to say about Meyer, lest his team of lawyers and ne'er-do-wells uh, threaten me in some way. Anyway, one of the other things that Stevens did was, was publish a lot of UFO books, or, or republish a lot of UFO books, with a lot of editorialization from Stevens. Now, I can't find any trace of this book anywhere except on the website that sells Stevens's ebooks and on Amazon where I bought it. And Amazon has a terrible, terrible sort of converted from PDF, you know, and also run through a dishwasher version for Kindle. Now, Stevens's website, uh, which apparently is run by, I don't know, somebody who survived him, uh, declares it to have originally been published on mini CD, which is just dumb. So where did this come from? What is it? Well, Stevens tells us. This autobiography came into our hands through a very trusted and well-informed friend. Ooh, very mysterious, very frightening. 
also very much code for we made this up. It heightens the mystery. Something else that heightens the mystery is the acknowledgments page. Acknowledgement is made by Helen and Betty Mitchell to Bud Hopkins for his devoted assistance in bringing this material to light. What? Okay, this dedication here was the only connection between artist and pioneering abduction researcher Bud Hopkins and the Mitchell sisters I was able to find. In fact, this book is, is, is almost the only thing about the Mitchell sisters from after the 1950s that I could find. I don't know where Bud Hopkins came into this. If anybody out there knows, please let me know. Um, as I tell my students, uh, you know, some of you know more about some things than I might, so please don't be shy about telling me. Stevens spends most of the introduction of this book talking about everybody who's been a contactee, except, you know, the Mitchell sisters. By the end of the introduction, he brings it back around and explains a little bit more about how all of this came to be. The Mitchell sisters first told their story at Buck Nelson's Flying Saucer Convention on 28th June 1959. They were attacked by the usual againsters. They did it once more at another similar convention the following year, then gave up and stopped speaking publicly. Gray Barker of Clarksburg, West Virginia, published the first transcript of that first presentation in a small 15-page booklet called We Met the Space People, which he sold for a dollar per copy. The story of the Mitchell sisters was told in a republication of that small pamphlet under the title Among the Flying Saucers, and then the case seemed to have lost energy after the sisters stopped speaking on their experiences. But Helen set down their autobiography of their case in a 216-page typed manuscript, which comprises this book you now hold in your hand. We can see how their case progressed beyond their wildest dreams and unimaginable in its fantastic scope. So, who knows? Really, who knows where this comes from? Helen wrote it, maybe. Stevens got a hold of it through mysterious means, maybe. Bud Hopkins was involved, probably not. And somehow it all comes out, as far as I can tell, two years after Stevens dies. Now, to be fair, Stevens self-published a lot of his stuff. It's very possible that there was a physical copy of this book that appeared somewhere before 2012, and if he sort of printed things himself and just sort of hand-sold them out the trunk of his car, um, it's very possible that he did this without registering an ISBN number, which means you're probably not going to find it in many places on the internet now anyway. But whatever. We're used to shady rewritings of UFO stories around here. Let's look at what this autobiography has to offer. In general, what it has to offer is a lot of words. It's long. It's wordy. It's overwritten to an appalling degree. Stevens, and I'm just going to label him the creator, is basically extrapolating from We Met the Space People, creating a fully fleshed out book. So being an autobiography, it starts with the sister's early life, but it's vague. There's no dates. There's not even years. They, they give no ages for any of the, the, the things they talk about. There's no actual locations. We learn that they lived somewhere in, quote, the Southwest. Their father was a carpenter, and for economic reasons, they moved to the greater St. Louis area. Both sisters married, and at least one of them had children. Neither marriage worked out, and they're both divorced, moving themselves and their children back in with their mother. 
Their father had died by this time, whichever time this is. Now, the young children and 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 marriage that that happens quickly and then dissolves quickly, that's actually historically in sociology, sociologically rather, um, that, that makes a kind of sense. Um, divorce rates in the early 1950s, early to mid-1950s were, uh, were, were much higher than in previous decades, mostly due to the, the large number of sort of wartime, World War II era marriages where two people get married and then one goes off to war and they come back and they haven't seen each other in, in three or four years and they realize we never should have gotten married. And sometimes there were children involved in these marriages that split up. So that's that's actually, if this is entirely fabricated, that's a nice little touch. Because of this, what we also see in this book is there's a theme of of marriage and parenthood, or, or really motherhood, that sort of recurs throughout this thing, as we'll see some examples of. So let's look at this whole thing, and we'll start, as we did with Barker, as we did with the sister's own account, we'll start with the initial meeting in the coffee shop. What a wonderful day to be alive, I said to Helen, for the air was completely invigorating, even though the May day was seemingly warm. We've just got to get out. Where to? asked Helen. Just out, I answered. In a matter of minutes, we were both ready, and our goodbye to mother and the children was quite short. As we drove through the city streets, all nature seemed to be bursting forth in a shower of greenery. Inside me, there seemed to be a bursting forth, too, but what was causing it, I didn't know. Maybe something big was about to happen to us. Anyhow, I felt like it was. I turned and smiled at Helen as if I had a really deep, thrilling secret, but she didn't notice, for she was busy looking at the scenery. So first off, it was supposedly written by Helen, but here it's all narrated from Betty's point of view. Second, there's just so much filler, and it just gets worse. So they meet the two men as before, but with huge paragraphs of dialogue where such things were just glossed over in the initial account. For example, this is the sequence where the aliens explain about the women's childhood, the details that convinced the sisters that something strange was going on. Betty? Do you remember the time when you were twelve and praying alone in the small church when you realized your inner consciousness? And the many trips you made down to your grandmother's when summer came and you stayed with her? And you, Helen, the time you saved your money for a small telescope, but spent it on medicine for your dog because she was sick? Remember those things? By now I was feeling an almost uncontrolled desire to get up and run, but Helen was sitting on the other side of the table and made no effort to move. Perhaps she was too startled to move. Do you know we have spent many years watching you both and awaiting the proper time for contacting you, he continued. I was realizing now how the savage must have felt as the first white man barged in on his little secure domain. My defense was gone, and I suddenly realized I had little use for defense if these persons were who they said they were. And who else could know of the very personal things in our lives? I'm sure Helen didn't know about the little church. And she'd never told me where the money for her telescope had gone, or anyone to my knowledge. The Space Brothers then attempt to reassure them. We are members of a force known as the League, which is composed of people from the planets Mars, Venus, Saturn, Jupiter, Pluto, and others. Our appearance to you was not intended to upset you, for we understood your positions as mothers and family providers. So there we get an example of the emphasis in this book of the sisters' role as mothers with the broader gender assumptions hanging in the background. 
In fact, there are several hints of ennui, almost depressive episodes presented as, as the, the Mitchell sisters, or at least when, when Betty narrates her part, that they aren't happy with their life. Here are the sisters back in the city, waiting for the second contact with the Space Brothers. We took more time this day in making our arrangements with Mother to care for the children and getting ready to go. There was none of the carefree feeling we'd had a week before. At last we left the house, and as we drove through the same streets I felt a little better. It was good to get out. Maybe today would unload some of the feelings which had piled up inside me. We parked in the same area we had a week ago, and after locking the car we started out. Our shopping took only a few minutes, and we started looking for a movie that would fill in what seemed to be lacking in our lives at that particular time. Nothing interested us very much. Not much at all. But we'd made up our minds to go to a movie, so we meant to go. We go to a movie. We don't want to go to a movie, but we decided to go to a movie. Then we'll meet the space people. Soon we die. It's pretty grim. And here, here they are after they receive instructions on how to build the interocitor, or communications device. We left, almost forgetting to pay for our drinks. We were in a hurry now. Life had taken on a new and exciting meaning for both of us. The thought of being tricked or fooled had left both our minds. If this device worked, we had all the assurance we needed that we were into something very different and very exciting. You know, forget my children. I've got, you know, a radio now. So lots of lots of sort of hints and, and, and statement, not hints, but actual, you know, statements in here about how now their lives have meaning, which isn't unusual in contactee stories. In fact, it's a little, you know, too unusual, too normal in contactee stories for it not to appear in a story like this, if it makes sense. There's also, after this meeting, one of the most needlessly pointless lines ever written, not in a contact ebook, maybe one of the most pointless lines to ever appear in print anywhere. We didn't spend much time driving home, although we broke no speed law. The speedometer needle was always just on the exact speed as the posted signs allowed. We drove home quickly within the speed limit. That's how you write that sentence. It takes much less time. The needle stayed exactly where it was to be in line with the posted speed. No one talks like that. No one writes like that. Now, compare that overblown sentence to the transcript of the talk. The sisters in that initial speech that we have were well-spoken, but direct and unflashy. This speedometer line reads like someone needing to hit a target word count. It's it's one of those little things that, that sort of says, this is not genuine to me. And, and during a subsequent meeting, there is this very odd exchange between, um, between Helen and the aliens. Such a nice dog, said Zelas. Yes, a beautiful dog, said Elen as he reached over and rubbed Bambi's neck. I could see there was a great mutual friendship established here immediately, but Helen said something that almost floored me. Would you like to have him? She asked. I was shocked at her words, but that was Helen. If anyone admired anything she owned, she always offered it immediately. Well, she had said it, and although I hated to lose Bambi in the worst way, I'd have to go along. My sister's an insecure weirdo who gives away her stuff to anybody who admires it, but what are you going to do? It's weird, and um, it's 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 just weird. I, I don't know. And who are, is any 
type of person worse than the type of person who tries to give you stuff when you compliment it. Oh, that's a nice sweater. I'll give it to you. you know, nobody likes people like that. So just as weird, and just in time for Helen's trip on the flying saucer, the entire perspective of the book changes, and suddenly, out of nowhere, Helen is narrating the book, and we also learn that Betty is pregnant. Why is Betty pregnant? Apparently, from what I can read, it's to provide a reason why she doesn't go on the saucer ride with Helen. More realistically, Wendell Stevens, or whoever he had writing this, forgot that he had said in the introduction that Helen was narrating it instead of Betty, and it was easier just to start a section with Helen narrating it instead of editing the whole book. Anyway, before Helen's trip, which is, by the way, very much like the original account, but without the watch demagnetizing box, we get an expansion of the scene where Helen is nervous but reassured by Zelas's smile, which you heard in fanfic theater and which was part of the original story that Helen told at the convention. The wonderful feeling was coming over me again. It frightened me now that I felt it so clearly. Was I falling in love with these two? Such a thought shocked me, but I had to face it. My feelings always got too mixed up when I was with them. But to picture them as a husband also shocked me, and suddenly I knew I couldn't even bring myself to think of such a thing. They were different. That was the only way I could describe it. Sort of holy. Yes, that was the word, holy. This word scared me too. But I had the same feeling about them I had when I was in church with the organ playing quietly and everyone bent reverently in prayer. Good lord, was I beginning to worship them? I do have to say I very much admire how whoever the author of this is, gets right up to the edge of this becoming a sort of Elizabeth Clare-like romance story, but then, then sort of pulls back and is like, no, this is weird. This is different. This is not romance. This is not romantic love. This is something more akin to awe. Also in this book, we get a very cool Martian language sort of farewell valediction. Melbez de San, he said as he left us and moved to his own car. Melbez de San, I asked. What does that mean? Peace be with you, answered Elan. Well, there you go. Use that uh, next time you see somebody and watch them uh, not be your friend anymore. The second half of the book is philosophical stuff, sort of Martian Venusian science. It's very akin to the, uh, the stories that Betty told at the Buck Nelson convention about the end of Atlantis and the flood and things like that. It's, there's no real significant difference here, um, but it is greatly and boringly expanded. And the whole book ends abruptly. It's almost not an ending at all, but that could just be the terrible formatting of this Kindle version having left out some pages. There's an appendix which appears to be illegible scans of a printed-out website about ruins on Mars. So that's that was worth my money. Regardless of the provenance of this autobiography, it's an interesting expansion of the story, but I do think it remains in the realm of, of sort of fan fiction, unless we can figure out whether or not the sisters, whichever one you choose, actually had anything to do with it. Or if because they'd basically disappeared from the scene if Wendell Stevens thought he could get away with doing whatever he wanted. Also, very possibly in the fanfic department, is a re-release of the original We Met the Space People pamphlet, retitled We Met 
Valiant Thor and the Space People. This is this came out a year or two ago. It's it's on Amazon. It's supposedly a modern reprint of a 1983 edition from Gray Barker. And there's a 1983 edition introduction from Gray Barker where Gray Barker explains the whole thing like this. In the Now It Can Be Told department, we now reveal that Alna, the Venusian credited with speaking to the Mitchell sisters when this book came out in 1959, was actually none other than the Venusian leader, Valiant Thor. We weren't telling too much of a fib, either. Alna is reportedly the name on Venus for lieutenant. Since Valiant Thor was a lieutenant before becoming the commander of all military forces on Venus, it was appropriate to call him Alna Thor. And he truly is a leader, as his words and the words of his crew members herein reveal. Now, maybe, but this modern reprint is from the same people who brought us the chopped-up, mangled, altered version of Visitors from Lanulos by Woody Derenberger. And they also have a number of other contactee reprints, for example, a lot of Michael X's books, which inexplicably have Valiant Thor's name on them. You can check it out if you want, but be warned they're charging $15 for a 48-page booklet. Looking at George Eberhardt's extensive bibliography of contactee materials, it's unclear if Barker republished the pamphlet in 1983. There was a reprint in 1981. However, no edition except for this modern Amazon Create Space copy mentions Valiant Thor in the title. Buyer beware, obviously. Now, finally, speaking of fanfic, yeah, here we go. This is, um, there's a guy, yikes, I, this makes me angry. I'll try to control myself. A guy named Dr. Ray Keller. He's got a PhD in history from, um, somewhere. He calls himself Cosmic Ray. He's written a, a series of books called the Venus Rising Trilogy, which, from what I've heard in interviews with the man, is largely a defense of an Adamski-style vision of what Mars is really like. It's weird and kind of dumb. Anyway, in an article for Alternate Perceptions Magazine, or their website, in February 2019, Cosmic Ray presented the story of the Mitchell sisters with no citation of the booklet, no reference to Gray Barker having told their story in Caesarean, no mention of the Wendell Stevens autobiography. He mentions, he basically quotes Barker's assessment of the story from that issue of the Caesarean, but that's all he has. He just basically retells it as if the story had never been told before. Keller's account, um, like the one published by Stevens, and honestly, mine, seems to be an imagined expansion of the story that was told in Caesarean and or the booklet of their convention presentations. And as we have with the other published accounts, we'll start at the beginning. It was Thursday, 2nd of May, 1957, when Betty and Helen Mitchell of 1415 Bernadette Street in Florissant, Missouri, were in St. Louis doing some shopping. They were looking for some new summer outfits. At about the noon hour, the Mitchell sisters were getting a little hungry and tired on their feet. They went into a nearby sandwich shop and placed their lunch orders, with Cokes as their beverages. The previous customer had left a newspaper on the bench where Helen was seated. Helen picked it up, and there was an article about extrasensory perception that caught her attention. Look at this, Betty. The article says that we all have extrasensory abilities, but some have a little more of them than others. Do you think we have any kind of powers like this? I don't know, Helen, but I'm pretty sure I can read your mind about 50% of the time, especially when it comes to boys. Both of the women, in their early 20s, chuckled. 
Helen was about two years older than Betty. There were two young men at the next table, and both of them glanced in the Mitchell sisters' directions when they heard them laughing. Betty and Helen realized they were being observed by the men and decided just to ignore them. After all, they had no idea who they were or what their intentions were. Suddenly, one of the lads walked over to the Mitchell's table. The sisters, being quite beautiful, were apparently accustomed to receiving wolfish attention. They were getting ready to give the approaching fellow the proverbial brush-off when they noticed that up close the fellow looked somewhat odd, even out of place. Helen couldn't determine in her mind's eye just what it was about the gentleman she found so disconcerting. So strange. Perhaps it was his dark complexion. He looked Sicilian, or some type of Mediterranean ancestry. The olive-skinned man finally spoke up. I am Velas, from the planet Mars, and my friend Elan is from Venus. Elan had light blonde hair. So, like the autobiography, we find out that it's May, but where did the we're buying summer clothes come from? Where did we ordered lunch come from? What stands out to me here is that, a little bit like the Stevens book, there's an effort to overemphasize the sisters' femininity. Um, he points out that they were beautiful or pretty or whatever. By what standard? Where do you get this? There's a drawing on the cover of Gray Barker's pamphlet, but I don't, I don't think there's ever been any photographs of them. And in any case, why does that matter? Now, this femininity in the autobiography, this took the form of emphasizing the role as mothers and, and mentioning Betty's pregnancy. Here, Cosmic Ray seems to be writing the sisters as whatever a creepy old man thinks boy-crazy girls were like in the late 1950s. It's, it's demeaning, and I challenge anybody who's read the Mitchell sisters' original work, or even the Wendell Stevens thing, to figure out a good reason good reason why Cosmic Ray should choose this characterization. Also, the apparently accustomed to wolfish attention and prepared to give him the customary brush-off line directly plagiarized from Barker's article in the Saucerian. It gets worse. After the alleged spacemen left the sandwich shop, Betty and Helen turned to face each other, each with their mouths agape. What just happened, Helen? inquired Betty. Heck if I know. I really don't know what to make of this. Perhaps it's some kind of elaborate hoax. But whatever it is, I kind of like Velas and, and want to get to know him better. You can have the blonde guy. Why do I always get your leftovers? Don't be so silly, Betty. I mean, Elan is from Venus, the planet of love. You might be getting a better deal with this one. Later that night, after the sisters turned off the Bob Cummings show at 9 p.m. and nestled down for the night, they both dreamed about what surprises the following week might bring. Tee hee. You can have the other one. I like the one from Mars. What the? The oh, oh, makes me mad. This is so stupid. It's so stupid, and it's so unnecessary. Just so unnecessary to write them this way. I've been. I mean, I, I wrote about the Mitchell sisters a little bit in my my first book, my, my sort of contacty book. I wrote about them when I was in grad school. I've been very familiar with that original pamphlet and the, the Saucerian article for close to close to 20 years now. And to see a guy who, who, honestly, a guy who calls himself Cosmic Ray writing about them like this based on nothing but his, his, his frankly misogynistic ideas of, of what a couple of young girls meeting spacemen probably acted like. It really irritates me. And also notice that he uses the name Velas, not Zelas. So 
this sort of reinforces my idea that that old cosmic ray here hasn't actually read the sister's pamphlet he's just he found he found the same pdf of that Sosarian issue that i have Ray also screws with the original narrative in some, some other ways. The sisters don't build the communications device. They're simply given a communications device. Helen asks how it works and is told, quote, let's just say it's a type of technology similar to your transistor radio and leave it at that. Cosmic Ray is rejigging the whole story to strip the sisters of their intelligence and of their skill. Cal Meacham could build an interocitor. The Mitchell sisters have to be given a transistor radio. And although he does have Helen take the saucer trip with the Space Brothers, Betty comes along for the car ride. The dialogue here is both ridiculous and vomit-inducing. How would you like to, shall we say, beat it out of here, girls? asked Vilas. We can take you to our ship. It's parked just outside of town, hidden from view, parked next to a large barn. We have a safe house on a farm not too far from here. Betty and Helen turned to each other and then in unison spun around toward the spacemen and declared, What are we waiting for? Let's go. The gentleman followed the ladies out the door of the coffee shop and onto the street, where a red and white four-door Chevrolet Bel Air hardtop was parallel parked. Both of the spacemen opened the back doors for their respective girlfriends to seat themselves comfortably in the back seat. You know, we're not into any kind of backseat bingo, said Helen. Oh yes, said Velas as he positioned himself behind the wheel. No funny stuff. I guarantee it. Okay. Serenity now. So, Helen remains the only one to go in the saucer, but Betty, uh, she's still there. She chickens out before um, getting on board. She claims she'll get airsick or something. One of the aliens stays behind with her and shows her a documentary about Venus and is told, quote, Venusians and the bees were intimately connected at many levels, end quote. That's just nasty, and I'm not sure I won't have to uh, put the explicit tag on this episode. Ray's account pretty much ends with the saucer trip. There's the briefest of summaries uh, about the dangers of nuclear war, but that's it, because he's basing this on the original Saucerian article and nothing that came after. His retelling of the Mitchell sisters' story is shameful. Now, I have serious reservations about the Wendell Stevens Mitchell sisters autobiography, but I appreciate that whoever wrote it tried to give them some depth and some characterization. Cosmic Ray, on the other hand, is the dirt worst and he's a piece of trash. I attempted and failed to find contact info for him, but I'm going to continue my efforts to find him and tell him I think his article in the Mitchell Sisters was terrible. And I want to sort of find out what his angle is on this, if he was just sort of making up a story that he thought nobody would call him out on, or what. I have sent my views on this to the editors of Alternate Perceptions magazine, and this is the email I sent them. Hello. I was wondering if you could provide an email address for Dr. Ray Keller. His article in the Mitchell Sisters was utterly terrible and distorted several aspects of their story while at the same time presented them as somewhat horny, dim-witted caricatures. He is the dirt worst, and I feel honor-bound to tell him this man-to-man. I'll keep you all updated on uh, any response I receive. It's been about a week. I've heard nothing. My anti-Ray Keller campaign will continue um, until he responds to me or until somebody sort of very awkwardly informs me that he died three months ago and I'm just sort of a jerk. 
So where does that leave us with the Mitchell sisters? Well, for one thing, where are they? What happened to them? I tried to find out. I, uh, I used all the resources I could sort of muster without paying any money. And I, the, there's, a middle, there's, there's middle initials for the sisters that are presented in some sources, but I don't know about them. If we leave out the middle initials, I might have found a possible hit for Betty Mitchell in Missouri. The age is right. She's in her early 90s now. Um, she lived at one point in Florissant, New Jersey, or not New Jersey, Missouri. Um, but that's all I've found. And since she's an old lady, like really old, I, I'm not going to like try to call her and find out if it's her. There is a house at the address in Florissant mentioned by Gray Barker. But it's actually St. Bernadette Street, not South Bernadette Street. The house was built in 1953, according to Zillow, so that could have been where they lived. So we have a possible house at a possible, at the address that was given. We have a Betty Mitchell in, I think, Springfield, Missouri, who once lived in the town of Florissant, which is sort of a northwestern suburb of St. Louis. The house was uh, 900 square feet, which doesn't seem large enough for the two sisters, the mom, at least three kids, one on the way. And the Wendell Stevens biography makes it clear that they had like sort of workspace to build the communications device and private areas to have talks with the aliens. And I just don't see that in a 900 square foot house. Anyway, if any of you know more about the Mitchell sisters, let me know. So some baseless speculation. Baseless speculation, a new section, a new department. In response to emails asking me often what I think about this or that case, I've decided to speculate about this one thing. This won't be a regular feature, but sometimes the situation will call for it. So here's the question. Is it completely outlandish to think that the Mitchell sisters never actually existed? Okay, it, it probably is. But I don't think there was a Mitchell sisters after 1959. I'm convinced, and please, if you have information, convince me otherwise, that the Wendell Stevens biography was a fictional extrapolation. It was fanfic. Stevens generally put a lot of himself into the books he published with contacting materials, with authors who were long gone from the scene. He would insert things of his own. So why would not do this with the Mitchell sisters? They spoke at the Buck Nelson convention, and then they disappeared. Why? Maybe they didn't get the response they wanted. Maybe their story was just too generic by 1959 to really get them any traction. I don't know why they left. But let me think about it this way. Let me talk about it this way. Let's assume there were Mitchell sisters, that they weren't a Gray Barker publicity stunt. And I have thought through that possibility. So if they did meet someone in a coffee shop in St. Louis, who was it? Like most contact encounters, the aliens were just like us, maybe with a darker complexion, but not too dark. They met them. They gave Helen a ride in a car. They communicated with them via a radio-like device. They passed them information that was so similar as what had come to other contactees and, and, and others, that it might as well have been a sort of contactee greatest hits compilation. I was thinking about this, and I, I realized that, that me and about half a dozen of you out there listening could, if we wanted to, pull off the same thing with a couple of marks anywhere in the country. 
the details about your childhood thing, psychic charlatans do that kind of cold reading all the time. Now, they did ride in a spaceship, but we could probably pull that off if we could somehow drug people. Think about Helen's journey. She was really gung-ho for a ride in a saucer, but then experiences a little trepidation before getting on it. She's reassured by Zalas' smile. The girls were drinking Cokes every time they met these guys. A bubbly drink. Who else has had bubbly drinks? Orfeo Angelucci had bubbly drinks. And if you look at Nick Redfern's work, there's some suggestion that maybe Angelucci was part of an experiment by somebody, that he might have been dosed with something. The girls drink bubbly drinks. Helen's excited, nervous. Zela smiles at her. She's all fine. Everything's fine. Some kind of suggestion, some kind of trigger. Was this all an elaborate setup? Nothing Helen sees on the ship would be outside the ability to rig up an astound stage, even in 1959, especially with, you know, military or intelligence resources. I keep thinking that the story they tell is bland enough that it almost seems like a pastiche of contactee stuff, but they're so sincere. They come across as so sincere, and I've been reading their, their, this story over and over, like I said, for almost 20 years, and so I've got sort of a soft spot for the Mitchell sisters, but I wonder if somebody was trying to do something to create a contactee situation to further discredit the idea of nuclear disarmament or ceasing nuclear testing because that really was the message they were getting. Take the message of stop nuclear testing and put that message in the mouths of people who are clearly either insane or delusional or just lying grifters. Who and who would do this? That's the question. That's a question I really don't have an answer to. Like I said, this is all baseless speculation. Um, but there won't be much more baseless speculation in the future. I get a feeling I'm have a feeling I'm not very good at it. In any case, the Mitchell sisters' story is a good reminder that there was an entire universe of contactees outside of the big names. We'll be working on some episodes in the future, near future, where we explore some of these less discussed figures in the contact movement, particularly women. The Mitchell sisters' saucer life was small and compact, and someday, maybe, someone will uncover the broader story of their lives to provide some context and to give us some idea of who they were, besides what we have from when they spoke at Buck Nelson's convention, or what somebody like Wendell Stevens, or... God help us, Cosmic Ray comes up with. Until then, we do have their words, and we've got that fanfic, and it'll have to do. Except for Cosmic Ray. Cosmic Ray is trash. Links to available reference materials I talked about on this episode are in the show notes. There's a link to the, quote, autobiography that Wendell Stevens published. Um, it's on Amazon, but please remember my caveats about the quality of that digital edition. I did put a link to Cosmic Ray's story. If any of you know Cosmic Ray, tell him I want to talk to him. I'm not kidding. I really, really want to talk to Cosmic Ray. 
An Illinois Interlude was written by me and adapted from We Met the Space People by Helen Betty Mitchell. It featured Roberta Evangeline Straith as Helen Mitchell. The associate producer of The Saucer Life is Simpson J. Hanover III. The Saucer Life is a production of Chizo Media, LLC. Chizo Media, working for the good of mankind along the lines of brotherhood and science. Till next time, Melbez de Son.